Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Welcome to Into Africa. We're joined today by Kathleen Welsh, the director of the Global Food Security Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Caitlin. I'll turn it to you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me, Mbemba. It's a pleasure to join you on Into Africa. Hi, everyone. I'm Caitlin Welsh. I direct the Global Food Security Program at CSIS, as Mbemba said. I most recently served at the National Security Council and National Economic Council at the White House. Prior to that, I served for about seven years at the State Department's Office of Global Food Security, including as acting director of that office. I have additional experience in food security, in particular as it relates to Africa, having served at the U.S. African Development Foundation and also as a Peace Corps volunteer prior to that. Happy to draw on this experience and again to join you for today's discussion in November. Thank you very much, Kathleen. I'm so excited to co-host this episode with you. Over the past two years, a convergence of global contingencies, including pandemic-related supply shortages, climate-driven drought, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have plunged an additional 150 million people into a state of hunger. This is according to the United Nations. The Horn of Africa is one region that has been hit particularly hard. This area, which includes Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya, has suffered four consecutive failed rainy seasons, and the region is experiencing its worst drought in four years as a consequence. According to the World Food Program, 20 million people in Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia face the risk of starvation by the end of this year. The response from the international community has been slow in coming and not particularly adequate. For instance, the humanitarian response plan for Somalia has only received 18% of the $1.4 billion to mount an effective response. In May, the World Food Program called for an additional $980 million to address these urgent needs in Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and Djibouti. On the bright side, one great and important news is that on July 18th, Samantha Power, the administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, announced here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies that the United States will provide $1.3 billion in humanitarian aid to the Horn of Africa to address the food crisis. Joining us today to discuss this challenge is Melodine Jepto, a researcher and coordinator at Plant Village, a nonprofit research unit that uses artificial intelligence technology, satellite systems, and field work to increase the yield and profit for millions of farmers in Kenya and its neighboring countries. At Plant Village, Melodine works to educate small-scale farmers and veterinarian department in northern Kenya to provide animal health advice and solution to pastoralists through reporting of animal disease symptoms. Good afternoon and welcome, Melodine. Thank you so much. Actually, it's uh, evening, it's night. <laughs> yeah, so I can say good afternoon to you, but to me, it's uh, good night. Good evening to you, Miss Melodin. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to be here today and 
meeting everyone today to talk about this uh, the food insecurity crisis. And I'm in Kenya, but I've been to Ethiopia and maybe hearing about the Somalia. So actually, it's about the, the Horn of Africa. So I know what's happening in Kenya is definitely happening in Ethiopia and Somalia and the other countries. But the most hit are the Kenya, Ethiopia and Somalia. Thank you so much for that overview, Melodine. I'd like to draw that out a little bit. As Mbemba mentioned, around 20 million people are experiencing acute food insecurity across Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. Over 11 million, almost 12 million people can't access enough safe water for cooking, drinking, and cleaning. And among the the population that's experiencing acute food insecurity are 7 million children who are acutely malnourished including almost 2 million who are requiring urgent treatment for severe acute malnutrition. All of that's happening across the Horn of Africa. And the reasons that, you know, that we're reading about based in Washington have to do with drought and climate shocks. They have to do with conflict, instability and displacement on increasing prices and decreased purchasing power as livelihoods are diminished and also the impacts of the war in Ukraine. All these things are coming together to affect food security in the region. Again, we're reading about that here. Can you tell us what you're seeing on the ground? Thank you so much. So actually, when we talk of Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia, so I think the most affected country is Somalia because it's almost all parts of Somalia. But when it comes to Kenya, it's um, mostly the northern parts and the eastern parts of Kenya. Then for Ethiopia, it's the, the southern and the southeastern part of Ethiopia. So when you, you talk of the numbers, so don't think of the Ethiopia and Kenya as a whole country, you know, because the other regions, it's somehow uh, getting some small rain. Although it's below average or maybe the average rain as compared to the other years. But for these northern and the eastern regions, it's mostly asal areas and mostly the pastoral communities. And you understand that these areas, they are vast. They are vast and pastoralists, they only depend on their animals. So when there is drought like this year and maybe last year since 2020, and remember also during the locust crisis, these were the areas that were hit very hard by the locust. So the pastoralists were recovering from the shock of the locust and the COVID-19 and also we have the drought again here. So what happens is the pastoralists, they have their animals, they, they graze their animals. So when there is drought, there is no pasture, there is no water. So they have to move to places where they can get the, the pasture and water. So when they migrate, normally it's uh, mostly the, the young men and the old men who moves with the, migrate to the animals. But for women and uh, young girls, they stay at home. What happens to those who stay at home? They have to go around looking for food and water. So they travel like long distance to look for water. And considering that the girls and the young women can be exposed to the gender-based violence here and also being exposed to some harsh conditions, the weather conditions. Because remember, if we don't have water for young girls and for women, the little water that they get, they prioritize for cooking and for drinking. But for sanitation, mm -mm, you put aside first, yeah. So in Kenya, we have like 10 pastoral communities, yeah. These communities, maybe four communities are trying to converge in one area to get the pasta and water for the little that is available in those regions. So definitely there, there is conflict. And when there is conflict among these communities, that means those people who are in those areas, they are displaced because of the, the, the fights. 
of those communities. So when they are displaced, they move to new areas. Probably they don't have food in those areas. There is no water. And of course, the health facilities. That's why you find that uh, the, the health of those people, the pastoralists, and uh, those displaced is deteriorating very fast because they don't have access to health facilities. Also, for the young women and girls who stays back at home, remember these places are remote areas. Most of them comes from the remote areas. And when they travel to get water and maybe food, they have to relocate. They don't have permanent homes. They have temporary homes. So at times they move, they settle in another area. And then when there is no food, water in that area, so they move again to another area. So probably the, the county government, from the national government in Kenya, we have the county government. Yeah. So the county government won't know exactly the regions where these people are moving to. And therefore, even if they have any help for them, for the health, for food, they can't move and find uh, all of them. So you'll find that uh, children are becoming malnourished. We have, the, of course, the, the expectant women and also the lactating women. So they face those challenges. And uh, considering that now we have the, the food prices are hiking, and uh, for pastoralists, they always depend on the animals. They have animals. And because of drought, there is a starvation for animals. There is diseases because when an animal is starved, so they are emaciated. And there is this high chance of getting diseases. So uh, when the animal is starving, they have diseases. And due to this long tracking, looking for water and pasture, so the health of the animals becomes very poor. And remember, these are the animals that pastoralists use to exchange with the food products. So now the prices for the animals is going down, but the prices of the food is hiking. So probably you'll have to maybe have like two to three animals to sell and then you get the food, but that is not sustainable. So the pastoralists will end up selling all their animals just to get the, the food stuff. So... That's how the situation is. And when you look at uh, Ethiopia and Somalia, most of the schools now are closing because children are starving. Like in Ethiopia, more than 200 schools now are closing. And in Somalia, we have more than 100 schools closing because when people are being displaced due to conflict, so they, they move with their children to new places. Probably they'll not start the schooling immediately. So they'll have to stay at home, look for food and everything. So the children are starving, so they can't go to school. And even their parents, they don't have like enough money, enough funds to purchase the food for their shelter and maybe take them back to school. Yeah. In Somalia now, I think most of the people are moving to the urban centers, the camping sites. We know most Somalia is among the countries that has uh, many of the displaced people and are in the camping sites. So now the number of people in the camping sites is increasing. And we know that camping site is not a good shelter for people to stay. A lot of material that you've shared with us that we need to unpack. Caitlin, is there any specific dimension of what Melodine just shared after that speaks to you? Yeah, thank you, Melodine. Thank you for giving us a comprehensive and excellent picture of what is an incredibly disturbing situation. We know that the challenge of food insecurity does not exist in a vacuum. 
all of these crises exist alongside each other and, and, and worsen each other. So you did a, a service to us by explaining how health insecurity affects food insecurity and water insecurity and sexual violence increases in these contexts and how that relates to urbanization and all, all of these things together. So thank you for giving us that picture. There's one thing that I actually would like to talk about. You mentioned the desert locust crisis that hit the Horn of Africa recently. And I know that you were part of the response to that crisis that took advantage of thousands of people on the ground across the region, reporting data to to government sources, collecting this data. And it was really effective and critical in quelling this crisis. And so I'm actually wondering, number one, can you give us just a quick overview of what you did um, as part of that, that response? But also, is there something that can be applied from that response to the crisis that we're experiencing right now. Thank you for taking me back to 2020 for the locust crisis and how we, we did the response. Yeah, but then you're working with the, the UNFO. What we did as Plant Village, remember we had this, uh, the mobile application that were used to report the desert locust. At the same time, we had this COVID-19 outbreak. And by then, we couldn't have like the, the scientists or the old people going out to do the research and to help to, to report. Remember, the people that we have in our, the, the counties or the county governments, they are mostly the, the elderly people. And that's when they were told, like, you don't have to be uh, exposed because the, the elderly people were at risk of getting the disease. So what did we do as Plant Village? We had the young, young people from the local communities. We called them scouts, yeah? So we had them, we trained them how to use the, the app because most of them, they know how to use a smartphone. So when you give them a smartphone, so what you have to do is just train them how to use the app. And then the information was available to everyone. Even the, the county staff were getting the information, the UNFO were getting the information, and then they could plan for a, a quick response. So the idea was to use the young people. Why are we using the young people? It's because they come from their own localities. They understand the language. They know their areas. And these areas, they have a very bad topography. Yeah, so anyone from a flat land, you can't get used to it. So for them, they understand they can work. They can work for some distance, yeah? They understand the language. They know how to approach their people because I think you heard that most of them were saying that locust is is a blessing (laughs) It's bringing rain or it's food for their animals. So some of them had a uh, like different perspective about locusts. So convincing them was another thing. So it needs like someone from their community to convince them on why we should eradicate these locusts. Yeah. So and for them, they are quick to respond. For us, you can go out anytime and we are quick to learn because during that time when we had uh, the COVID-19, most of the things were done online. And most of these areas have very poor network. These scouts need to go work around, look for a place with network then so that they can communicate. I think the same approach can be used yeah, for this because the local youth also understand the perspective of their people, what they understand, how do they take this drought, what help do they need. And then remember for the pastoralist, when you tell someone, please, you have to to destock, like you have to reduce the number of animals that you have so that when the drought comes, you, you don't lose all the animals. 
But to convince a pastoralist, it's very hard. Remember, the number of animals is a measure of wealth for them. It needs someone from their locality who understands more and who can use many ways to convince that pastoralist. Melody, did you explain how perhaps the technology you used in response to the locust crisis could be applied in terms of the very multifaceted crisis that you're experiencing right now? The same technology, I think the data that was provided, it was, I can say, almost real-time data. And that was helping to, to make quick response and quick control for the desert locust. You can use the same technology when reporting, like, uh, for example, the malnutrition in children. That's when you can report. And this data, you can always have the location. So the county government, remember I told you the county government, the area is vast. And when the pastoralists move, the county will not know where they are. But when we have this technology, we have the person reporting from where they are. You can capture the, the location of the place. And when you have any response, you can always use the, the GPS location and you can always locate where they are. We can have a list of many things to report on. Like you can include a lot of things, a lot of data from that and can always be received on time. Melody, this is very interesting, the use of technology to track both human beings and hopefully animals, but also to follow the crisis itself, how it moves, especially if you talk about pastoralist communities. A couple questions for you. One, people willing to use the technology, or are they fearful that this may be government control of them, particularly in those spaces? Pastoralists are free-minded people. They free people, they move where they want to move. They don't want to be told what to do. But the purpose of tracking the data is also to come up with policy, a certain policy or policy recommendations. What reaction do you get when you use technology within this context of crisis, be it the locusts or be it this drought that uh, you just described? That's why I said we have to use the local people. We have to use the local youth and not only youth, Anyone who can use a smartphone can do that. And once you have convinced one or three people in that locality or in that community, they can always pass the information. And it's all about to help them, yeah? And not maybe to do anything bad to the animals. So you try and help them to understand that it's because you want to, to help them. We have a program called the Warrior View, and we have the Morans. The Morans are the young boys who normally goes out with their, with their animals. So what they'll be doing is taking images and looking for areas with pasture and advising the pastoralist where to take their animals and where not to take their animals. And that's why you say these are the people who they do what they want to do. And if you use their own people, we are going to try this and I hope it will work out. You advise them, we have the greening maps, we have the rainfall, uh, like the precipitation maps. So you try show them and advise them not to go to this place or go to this place. And we've been using, we have the those scouts who are doing the locust work. And some of them, we have eight of them now who have been issuing the precipitation maps and the greening maps to the pastoralist. And since most of them don't understand, like they can't read from the smartphone, but you try and explain to them what it means and why why they should adopt it. But if the data is, is real or it's true, then when they try it out and they see that whatever they, was, they were told is true, 
then I don't think if they have any any objection about that because it's all about their animals. Great. Thank you. Thanks. And Melodine, just to be clear, the work that you were describing is work that you're doing with Plant Village. Is that right? Yes. And I think you didn't read the bio very well. So what we've been doing is uh, working with the county, like the veterinary department. We also have an, an app that uh, the CDRs, we call them the Community Disease Reporters, who are actually volunteers. They have been trained on the livestock diseases and syndromes. So whenever they have the app, the app list, like the name of the pastoral list, the location that you are, and then a list of syndromes, yeah. So they use it to report, and the end users are the, the county veterinary staff, yeah. So once they receive the data, so that's when they can they can respond to the animal diseases. And we've seen that work very well because, again, these CDRs, they come from the same place. They come from the, the local community. So once they can convince a pastoralist, like, hey, your animal is not healthy, so let's try and examine the animal, then we can get a feedback or advice from a veterinary officer. And they don't have a problem with that. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. I'd like to come back to the description that you provided at the top of our conversation about the overlapping crises that are happening right now in the Horn of Africa. And I want to talk specifically about the price increases that are in large part a result of Russia's war in Ukraine. I think that sometimes theoretically uh, folks might have a difficult time understanding the impact of that war on food security in that region. Or if they understand it theoretically, then they don't have examples, real life examples to draw from. I do know that across the Horn of Africa, there's a heavy reliance on grain from the Black Sea, ranging from Kenya before the war was importing 30% of its wheat from the Black Sea from Russia and Ukraine, Ethiopia 40%, Djibouti 55%, Somalia 90% of its wheat was coming from Russia and Ukraine, and Eritrea 100%. So I know before the war, a heavy reliance on that region. How have disruptions in the Black Sea region, how have they manifest on the ground in terms of prices for staples, prices not just for wheat, but other products like fertilizer? And then how does that have follow-on effects on food security where you are? Apart from these, uh, the, the Ukraine and the, the Russia war, remember during the 2020 COVID-19 crisis, we also had like a slight increase of the, the food prices. But then back in 2021, they were back to, to normal. And we had farmers purchasing agricultural inputs at like an average price, yeah. But this year was totally different, yeah. We had, like you said, the most of the inputs we relied on uh, Ukraine and Russia. We had an increase of like, for example, the, the wheat flour. We had an increase of like 50% increase of the prices, of which um, that was in between like a month to two. So the inflation was very high. Yeah? Again, we had like an increase in the, the fuel, the fuel prices. When, when there is an increase in fuel prices, you expect everything, like every price of, uh, price of every commodity to, to go up. Yeah? I know there are some commodities that uh, the Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia used to export to other countries. And because of this war, like, it led to like, a, a blockage of which um, this was like the export would give you some like income to do the, the inputs. So that one led to like imbalance of the, the revenue and the expenditure that 
the Kenyans are using. And again, for I think some of the farmers used to have maybe a little, like something in their stores as they waited for the long rain season or the harvest. Now, like everyone is depending on the government because of the, the last year's drought, like the, the, the third, was it the third? Third consecutive drought of the October to December. Most of the farmers relied on their the agricultural produce, but it failed. We had in some areas like Kilifi where we have a team working with the farmers, we had a total failure, like 99% failure of crop production in those areas. So that means this early this year, farmers didn't have anything in their stores for their food. So they were depending on the, the, the government and maybe the government to make some subsidies yeah, on most of their food food products. But the war led to, instead of having the subsidies, we had the hiking in the prices of most, I think it's almost all the commodities that have led to like an increase in price. Thank you. And there's something that I want to highlight here, which is that I think that observers can assume that when prices for wheat and fuel, for other staples like maize and cooking oil, when those things increase, it's just consumption of those foods that can decrease. But what we know is that that's not necessarily the case. Families generally have a fixed amount of of money that they'll spend on food. That can be the case. But as we're seeing right now, Melodine, because of what you described to us, that amount can be diminished as you have fewer livestock from which to make your livelihood, less crops to sell, etc. The amount of money that you actually have to purchase food decreases. So for all these reasons, it's not just the amount of food that's consumed that decreases, but the nutritional value of the food also decreases, which can have follow-on effect for nutrition and health and, and many other things. Thank you, Kathleen. I, I want to follow up, uh, Melodin, on this. So the locust crisis that you mentioned earlier is all the result of climate change. At least that's what we've been reading. It's connected to the world is a big village now, we say. Sometimes it sounds like a slogan, but I think it's truer than people realize. So if we understand correctly, the locust crisis actually started in the Arabian Peninsula, and then eventually that unleashed the onslaught that we saw in the Horn, but also as far south as Uganda, where locusts really decimated a lot of the, the fields there. With the drought, this is also connected to climate change. The drought, the faulty rainy seasons that the region has experienced can also be traced to climate change. What are the uh, precautions or policies that governments in the regions have put in place to protect these communities, not just the pastoralists. You know, take into consideration that change is coming and change is affecting everybody, maybe differently, but definitely in a way, in a way that we cannot miss. I think what, what the, the government is doing is generally creating awareness to, to the citizens. Like, like uh, we have a drought, we have a high chance of maybe low rains this year or next year, but you know, I think the, the governments are not always well prepared because remember we had a drought in back in 2010, 2011, and they were able to respond to it very well. We had it back in 2016, 2017, and they were able to respond to it. So I, I think the mentality that we have is that since we had drought in 2016, 2017, so it's going to take quite some long time before we have another one. So it doesn't give the, the government like enough time to respond to the shock or to heal from the shock. 
And when you see this drought from 2020 to 2022, we, we had this crisis of locust and COVID, which was unexpected to most of the countries. Yeah, They didn't have any allocation for those response. Yeah? So when again, after locust and after COVID, we had this drought. So it was like another shock. So you are healing from, you, you've not healed from another shock and you have another shock. So I feel like the country has not done so much on the allocation of resources, enough resources to deal with the climate change or the early warning systems. So mo mostly we have uh, the, the NGOs, I can say, the, or other organizations doing this, like um, doing the early warning systems. And also, yeah, I, I think we don't have the, the correct channel to do this, the warning systems, because you can be warning those in more stable areas and leaving those people who are the, the highly affected ones, so they have a high chance of being hit by, by the drought. So when we have the drought is when they can be like, oh, so we need to allocate these resources. But I think back in uh, last year, we had like a program by the government where we can, they can supply food for the people who are affected by the drought and also the health facilities Although they can't reach to all the people, but at least they are trying, yeah. But when you have like a little allocation of resources, then you can't manage everything. Thank you, Melodine. Again, I'd like to turn to the description that you provided at the very beginning of our conversation about all of the needs across the Horn of Africa right now that, that must be addressed through a variety of programs and investments. Last week at CSIS, USAID Administrator Power announced nearly $1.3 billion in additional funding for the region. And this encompasses a very comprehensive response to it, providing food aid, providing cash assistance, vaccines, addressing the increased incidence of disease during humanitarian crises, kits to help with water and sanitation, and also protection for children, and, and particularly for women and girls who are susceptible and experience higher rates of sexual violence in times like this. Based on what you've seen in Kenya and Ethiopia, what do you think the international community could do more? What might they, may they be missing, or what do you think they could do more of to address the crisis as you're seeing it? Yeah, I think most, most of the organizations uh, now, because I'm in Samburu and Samburu Marsa, but I've seen most of them doing the, the cash transfers to the communities. And I don't think that's a good idea because most of them are in the interior parts and they don't even get to, to purchase these commodities. And considering that we have these high prices, so they can only, or they can only get a few things. So what they can do is to do more of like baseline assessment of the exact regions where they can do the cash transfers and the areas where they can do the be in in material things or the food commodities itself if it's water if it's food so the areas differ so they can't use the same approach in different regions so they they need to do like a baseline assessment most of the people corrupt so you can't use someone who will use the money allocated for the needy people or people affected by the drought and then later on you think maybe they received but they didn't so they have to look at the kind of people they use and to do more follow-ups yeah this has been an insightful discussion we've learned a lot about the dynamics of this crisis and its impact on the communities in the region. 
in every situation, there is always a gap between what you read in the news, what you hear, and then the reality that is happening on the ground. And our job here as policy analysts at the CSIS, where we do our studies, is to bridge that gap between the reality and the perception. If you had a magic wand, knowing what you know and what you see, how would you use it to change the situation, to bridge that gap? That's kind of a tough question, yeah. But um, yeah, I'll try to respond. I think the main challenge is what brings that gap is the lack of information. So, and, or knowledge, information, knowledge, yeah, or awareness. And if we can have a way, like, how to, to make these people be aware or the best communication channel that we can remember you maybe now, wherever you are, it's like a, a research center. Then we have the end users, but who is in between here? We have in farmers, we say extension officers who passes knowledge from, from a research center to, to the farmers, but also it applies here. Who is in between here? Who is the, the communication channel? Yeah. What is the best uh, communication channel to use? Who is the best person to use and the best method to use? Yeah. Melodin, it's been very insightful for us. We've learned a lot about what's happening in the region. Kathleen, it's been a pleasure co-hosting this show with you. I hope we can do this more often. Thank you so much, Mbemba. It was a pleasure to join you. So thank you for inviting me today. And Melodine, thank you so much for joining us from Northern Kenya, evening time where you are. We very much appreciate your, your insights. So thank you for joining us as well. Thank you, Melodine. We really appreciate you. Asante sana. Thanks, you. It was great to meet you. Asante. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.